I see the future that's within our grasp. From the Political Science Department at UW-Madison. Democracy is not a prophecy, it's self-actuating. I'm Claire Salmi. I'm Cole Wozniak. And I'm Fiona Hatch. This is more work than in my previous life. I thought it would be easier. This is 1050 Bascom. In this episode of 1050 Bascom, we're excited to welcome Rochelle Snyder to the podcast. Rochelle is a PhD candidate in political science working on her dissertation about constituent service and representation in Congress. She received her bachelor's in political science from Westminster College in Pennsylvania in 2016, and is currently teaching a seminar on representation in American politics for the department this term. We will ask Rochelle about her class, as well as talk briefly about her own academic background and research interests, including her dissertation. Our main topic of discussion centers around representation in American politics, what representation means, and the state of representative democracy in the U.S. today. We really enjoyed our discussion, and we learned so much. We hope you will, too. Well, uh, let's start off by saying thank you so much for joining us. We're really happy to have you. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. It's really great to be here. Absolutely. So we kind of wanted to start broadly and talk about where you got started from in terms of your background, uh, maybe your time at Westminster College. So did you go into college knowing that you wanted to pursue a political science major? And did you think about any other tracks? I did declare a political science major as soon as I started at Westminster. So I was a poli-sci major right from the beginning. But there was a long time when I was in high school and I was thinking about college where I had planned to be an English major. I really loved writing. I knew I wanted to do a lot of that. I have never been seriously into creative writing though, so I knew I didn't want to be like a writer writer, like a fiction writer or anything like that. I really loved sort of the more technical academic kind of writing. And when I was in high school, I was also involved in a program called Youth in Government that was run through the YMCA, where high school students would meet every week to learn things like parliamentary procedure and practice writing and debating like our own little pieces of legislation. And then in the spring, we would all go to the state capitol in Harrisburg and we'd form a mock legislature with other high school students from around the state. We got to sit in like the actual House and Senate chambers, which was really cool. And we tried to get all of our bills passed. So that experience, especially the specific experience of like writing the bills, which again, I really loved. It was really technical. You had to be like really precise and thoughtful and like define key terms and concepts for each bill, which I really like thinking about. That experience kind of ended up pushing me toward being interested in political science because I realized I could do the kind of writing that I really liked. And I was just kind of more broadly interested as well in how the world worked and then figuring that out. I did end up doing a minor in English in undergrad alongside my poli-sci major, and I was always just really fascinated by how much those two sort of seemed to dovetail, at least for me. I think my interest in political science started out broadly just as an interest in exploring what people think and why they do what they do. That, of course, is something that's explored in literature and most other kinds of art, but mostly through fiction. And so I think I kind of saw political science research and especially public opinion and political behavior research, which I think a lot of work on representation also encompasses when you're looking at it from constituents' perspectives as like sort of a way to figure out you know, what real people <laughs> thought about the world and why. Um, like I think the interest that I have in, in art, broadly speaking, is sort of motivated by that same fundamental curiosity about people that motivates my research in political science. And then to me, the really interesting part about researching people as political actors is the fact that those thoughts 
And perceptions, when translated into actions, then have an impact on the political and social world more broadly, whether that's through how people engage in political activities or how legislators end up representing their constituents. There are clear implications that affect other people in ways that, you know, for me, make that part of political science really fascinating and, and worth studying. How did you make the decision then to go to graduate school and then pursue a doctoral program in political science? So I think I kind of knew going into undergrad that I was more likely than not going to go to graduate school for something. Um, that is not really the way I would advise to think about that. That's the way I thought about it, you know, when I was 18. Um, I wouldn't recommend going to graduate school, like, you know, just because, like, make sure you have, like, a clear goal and a plan with that. I was really lucky during my time at Westminster to figure out exactly what I did want to do by going to grad school. I was really fortunate to have um, fantastic professors in undergrad who encouraged me to go to grad school, and they did things like hire me to work as a research assistant for them, so I could get so I could get experience doing that um, and just see if that was something that I would enjoy doing, which it was. I really loved the work that I got to do through that. And being at a small liberal arts college, especially, I you know had basically the same four poli-sci professors like over and over through undergrad. And I saw and experienced firsthand what an incredible impact you can have on students through teaching and mentoring in that kind of environment. Um, I still, you know, I've been out of undergrad for a while now, but there are still things from my classes in undergrad, both from poli-sci classes and from other classes that I took in other um, disciplines. I took a lot of classes outside my major as well. There's still things that I learned in class that we talked about in my classes that I think about all the time and that have informed my research in really interesting ways. And I think that when you're passionate about a subject like I am with my specific research interests and with American politics more generally, it's just sort of natural to want to share that with people by teaching them about it, which is an incredible privilege to be able to do. I was also fortunate to be able to do an internship for two summers in a congressional district office in my hometown. I was pretty sure at that point that I wanted to go to grad school and not, um, you know, and teach and, and research and not like actually work in politics, but I thought it would be a really valuable experience to do that. And it ended up completely shaping my research interests. I worked um, answering the phone in a district office mostly and talking to constituents, and I was just really struck by how much they, in sharing their experiences and what they were going through with us, how much they trusted not just the legislative office more broadly, but also just like me specifically, you know, as this like 19 or 20 year old intern with, again, what were often really important and personal concerns. Um, so that led pretty directly to my research interests in representation and constituent service. I had a similar experience working in a district office. It was really, it was crazy to me when I started how much people were just like, oh yeah, we trust you as a 20 year old. (laughs) I actually could have graduated like a semester early from undergrad, like in that like fall, winter um, semester, like in December, I opted to stay and just like take some more classes like for fun in that that last semester because I knew I was going right to grad school. I had applied to places already at that point. I was kind of like, well, what am I going to do like with that time? But the more and more I think about it, I could have like, you know, used that to, I guess I could have used that like outside of of undergrad to sort of maybe get a foothold in my research interests. But those, especially those classes like I happened to take in that spring semester, those are some of the ones that I still think about all the time. And I'm really, really glad I did stay for that for that semester and, and take those classes. But I think it it's sort of an individual an individual thing in that sense. I think it depends on how well you feel you have a grasp on what your own research interests are. Because I think the real value in sort of taking time between undergrad and grad school would be to figure that out a little bit more. I, again, was really lucky in my first couple of years of grad school to be able to figure out exactly sort of where my research interests were and how specifically how specifically I could study that. Um, but I do sort of wish I had maybe come into grad school with a little bit better of a grasp on that just for myself. So I think that would be the value in, in taking a gap year in that sense. Let's move on to talking a bit about the seminar that we're really excited that you're teaching this year at the department or this semester, Representation in American Politics. Do you want to tell us a little bit about the course and some of its main topics, learning goals? 
Yeah, well, I should start by saying that I'm also really excited that I'm teaching the course. <laughs> I'm so grateful to the to the department and to the undergraduate team um, for the opportunity. And of course, my students, the class obviously couldn't exist um, without them. It's been an amazing experience. The course starts by having us think about definitions and theories and types of representation, which we then use as a basis for exploring empirical research on representation in American politics. So we'll look at research on how and why descriptive representation, especially by race and gender, occurs, as well as how policy representation works alongside descriptive representation, and how things like constituent communication and partisanship and accountability fit into the representational relationship. And the overall goal is to look at how well the systems and processes that are supposed to produce representation actually work on that count. One of the broadest theoretical um, conceptualizations of representation, one which political scientists often draw on, comes from Hannah Pitkin's 1967 book called The Concept of Representation, where she defines political representation as, quote, acting in the interest of the represented in a manner responsive to them. And this definition of representation in the context of the course, and especially as a starting point, was really useful for us because it raises all kinds of interesting questions for us to explore, like how do we define interests? Whose interests are those? Who actually is being represented? What does responsive mean in this context? And then another question that's implicit in that statement is what kind of interests are being represented? Most theories of representation assume that those interests are policy interests rather than interests related to other activities that legislators do to help constituents like getting federal funding for district projects or providing or providing constituent service. And this also doesn't even touch on the importance of descriptive representation in ways that aren't directly related to policy. Empirically, the way the political scientists have sort of traditionally defined representation when they studied it was in terms of policy congruence. So how well do constituents' policy preferences match up with those of their legislators? The early study that famously looked at this was from Warren Miller and Donald Stokes in 1963. And for quite a while, that was how, generally speaking, political scientists understood representation. It was happening if legislators followed the policy preferences of their districts. That's, pretty narrow, that's a pretty narrow definition of representation that doesn't really account for the many other things that legislators do for their constituents and the things that both legislators and constituents do to build and sustain that representational relationship. And other political scientists weren't quite satisfied with that narrow definition. So another article published by Heinz Ulow and Paul Karps in 1977 argued that we should expand our understanding of representation beyond policy congruence to also look at what they called service allocation and symbolic responsiveness in addition to policy responsiveness. So these other three things also encompass things like performing constituent service and helping districts get federal funding for local projects and other things that legislators do to build trust with their constituents and let them know that they're listening to them. So we'll look at all of those things with respect to representation, as well as, of course, descriptive representation, which refers to how much a legislature looks like the people that it represents in terms of descriptive traits like race and gender, and also in terms of experiences. And it's an important vehicle for the representation of historically marginalized groups as well. Wow. Do you, so you're focusing on the United States. Mm -hmm. Do you engage the question of whether the, 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 the kind of republic versus direct democracy model is something that... Is that part of the course in terms of the uh, sort of a normative question of which is better in terms of? Yeah, that was something that came up in the beginning because some of the like early, early criticisms of representation were that it was like sort of anti-democratic, that it was a poor substitute for direct democracy in that way. Um, we kind of do because there's so much other interesting stuff to cover, I think, about how um, like representation actually works. We do just sort of take the representative setup of our system of government like as a given and just sort of go from there. But that was something we sort of ended up um, discussing a little bit in the first week of class. Like is representation actually democratic like compared to this idea of direct democracy? Just to clarify, 
Is descriptive representation completely isolated from policy congruence, or can those two things be overlapping? There's definitely overlap between the two, I think. Um, So policy congruence, which is also referred to as substantive representation, again, refers to constituents sort of having the same policy preferences as their legislators, and therefore legislators acting to represent those policy preferences. And then descriptive representation refers to the degree to which a legislator or an entire legislature looks like the people they represent. So they share some descriptive trait, like race or ethnicity or gender, religion, national origin. So the assumption inherent in descriptive representation is that descriptive representation of minority and marginalized groups will lead to the substantive representation of those groups. That is what a lot of the research on descriptive representation finds, but at the same time, this doesn't just happen automatically. Um, So we explore in the course how and why descriptive representation occurs and leads to substantive representation in that way. That's really interesting. Do you have any examples of where those diverge in cases? Well, there's one um, really interesting example that was in a reading that we read uh, from Jane Mansbridge in, I think, the second week of class, sort of the, you know, a canonical article about the theoretical side of descriptive representation, where she addresses that criticism of descriptive representation, or at least, like, limitation, that it wouldn't necessarily lead to greater substantive representation for whatever group is being descriptively represented. And the example she uses there is from the New Hampshire State Legislature, which, at the time she was writing, had both the highest proportion and the highest overall number of women of any state legislature in the U.S., but because New Hampshire state legislators only make $100 a year, and that's been true for like at least the last 55 years or so, it really hasn't changed, only a certain kind of woman basically could literally afford to be a state legislator. So the women were mostly older homemakers who didn't really represent the interests of women with different backgrounds and other identities that intersected with gender. So the idea there is that descriptive representation alone is not necessarily enough to guarantee policy outcomes that will be in the interests of the groups being descriptively represented. And in that specific example, it was because that group of descriptive representatives itself was not representative of the full range of experiences and other identities that women have. It's not enough to just have you know, older, wealthier white women in office who also need to elect black women and Latina women and queer women and young women and working class women and so on there. Wow, very interesting. Actually, kind of leading into our next question, if um, we could take some time here, like talking about race, gender, class, and representation in American politics with all those different sectors. How do you go about talking about each of these integral factors, particularly in representation? Yeah, so all three of these factors, um, race, gender, and class, are sort of woven throughout the course material and are something we think about more or less every week in class rather than just sort of doing a week on each, the course does have a specific week on money, class, and organized interest in politics, as well as the weeks on descriptive representation would focus a lot on race and gender. But I wanted these topics to be something that we were deliberately thinking about throughout the course. The US was built on the exclusion of these groups from the very beginning. Only white landowning men had political power at first. And so acknowledging the way that historical context has shaped representation of these groups as they have you know, sort of slowly but surely gained representation over the years is really critical, I think. So there are lots of examples of, you know, the week where um, we'll talk about, again, the relationship between descriptive and substantive representation and thinking about both the ways where descriptive representation can lead to substantive representation through policy um, for a lot of these marginalized groups and also other effects that descriptive representation can have um, for these marginalized groups. There are, there's research showing that, you know, descriptive representation can increase trust you know, between constituents and their legislators in ways that then encourage constituents to contact their legislators, and it can have other um, sort of implications in that way as well. 
Do you think the mechanisms by which representatives seek to demonstrate their representation has changed with kind of the modern media environment? Like, we were thinking about the example of George Santos as like an extreme of this, but on the end of misrepresentation, but maybe he is like demonstrative of a capacity for representatives to create a perception of substantive representation when in reality they lack congruence with their constituents. I think the biggest way in which social media and just the nationalization of media and politics more broadly has changed how legislators approach representation involves how it's changed the audiences to which legislators can speak and therefore the incentives that they have to say what they say and to do what they do. It used to be the case that legislators would primarily communicate with their constituents by sending newsletters in the mail, writing columns in newspapers, uh, getting on local TV or showing up at local events and talking to them face to face. And now it's much, much easier for legislators to build a national audience, often one that's based around partisanship and not local interests in ways that I think at worst can distort legislators' representational incentives. We have seen this happen, I think, to a degree with legislators um, like Madison Cawthorn and even Kirsten Cinema, both of whom have been sort of notoriously unresponsive in terms of constituent service, but who have gotten a lot of media attention, um, mostly, I think you could argue, like unflattering in a lot of ways, but I guess attention is attention if that's uh, your goal in terms of being a legislator. So I think a lot of the effect of these changes in media has been to reduce legislators' incentives to be responsive to their constituents by offering them some other incentive and type of behavior to do instead, which is to appeal to a national partisan audience. The one thing that has really um, sort of pleasantly, I guess, surprised me about the whole George Santos thing is that, at least from news articles that I've seen about him and his constituents, his constituents really do not seem to be putting up with you know, his misrepresenting his background in this way, that even constituents who voted for him and are also Republicans are saying he should resign, you know, they feel betrayed by what he's done, they think it's wrong. I would have assumed, perhaps unfairly in some ways, that partisanship would override any concerns that his co-partisan constituents might have had about his credibility, because they would have just wanted to see someone from their party representing their district. But the fact that they're calling for him to step down, knowing that, especially in a swing district like this, a Democrat could win the seat, shows, I think, that factors other than partisanship or shared policy interests can still have a place in representation, at least from constituents' perspectives. So do you think that partisan polarization and representation kind of have some areas where they converge and work with each other and then other areas where they can be distinctly separate, like you said about the Santos case? Yeah, I think on the the other hand, there is a lot of research showing that constituents do place a strong emphasis on policy and partisan representation over things like constituent service. And again, where that gets sort of worrying to me, I think, is in its potential to crowd out legislators' incentives to engage in other forms of representation and responsiveness. And then with the number of competitive districts being so small you know, in, in the whole Congress, I sort of worry that more and more constituents are going to feel that they don't have any kind of connection to their legislator if they don't have that connection that's based in partisanship and if partisanship is what's important to them. And at best, I think that could just kind of cause people to maybe just check out of politics, which is bad from an accountability perspective if we want people to be engaged and aware of what their legislators are doing and knowing what's going on. And the one sort of bright spot in this is that there is research showing that constituents do give credit to their legislators for representing the policy preferences of their district as a whole well, even if the constituent doesn't agree with the legislator personally and they don't share those policy preferences. So again, even in the absence of policy congruence between an individual constituent and their legislator, they at least will still say that like, yeah, the legislator is representing the rest of the district well, I guess, even if I don't agree with them personally. Do you think the difficulty in like, really deciding what the public opinion of a certain local area is has contributed to that kind of increasingly 
polarized policy choices or defaulting to a party's position in every case, even at like a a state government level, just because I think a lot of representatives at this point assume that whatever is in mainstream media, whatever party you subscribe to, that's going to be the public opinion of their constituents anyway. Yeah, I think, you know, that difficulty in measuring constituent opinion at the congressional district level, at least in a way that will sort of give legislators a comprehensive view of what their constituents want is something that, you know, it's a problem in political science research, that it's sort of difficult to know, like, you know, exactly what district level opinion is on on a lot of these things. And it's difficult for legislators, too, and that makes representation um, difficult, too. They do, of course, like, hear from constituents in their district. They, you know, go out and talk with them. But a lot of the voices that they tend to hear are those that are just, you know, loudest. And there's also research showing that it's, you know, the better resourced groups that legislators hear from and think about when they think about, you know, who in their whom in their districts they're, they're representing. So, yeah, I think legislators just kind of have to do the best they can in gathering information about what, what their constituents want in ways that sort of could lead them to often default to just thinking about it in terms of, of partisanship. Another thing we've talked about in the course is the fact that elections are sort of, the term was like an information poor um, mechanism for letting legislators know what their constituents want. Like basically all they know is that like, I guess if they ran on like sort of one specific thing and they got elected based on that, they could say, well, yeah, like my constituents want this. But other than that, like how exactly do they know what Mm -hmm. what their constituents want? Mm -hmm. Um, So the ways that legislators have to sort of figure out what their constituents' opinions are, are often either biased or just sort of crude in ways that could make representation difficult, which again makes sense for them to sort of fall back on on party in that way. Sure. Yeah. Have you seen that there's any sort of trend um, in terms of voters voting more based on whether whether they feel like that representative is going to be substantively representing them versus descriptively representing them? Like if someone... um, holds a lot of the same identities that they do, but maybe has slightly different policy preference choices? Is Does one seem to weigh out over the other? I don't know off the top of my head if there's any research that has looked at that, but that's a really interesting idea because the incumbency advantage among legislators has declined in recent years, um, which suggests that your constituents are voting much more based on party than on just like sort of what the you know incumbent legislator has done for the district maybe outside of that. So in one sense I could see descriptive representation sort of potentially working in the same way, but then there's also the thing to consider the fact that like, you know, Congress has grown so much more diverse in, you know, even just the last like five or six years, like the last several several Congresses. So I think prior to that it'd be difficult to get like sort of a, a time series of data, I guess, like over that same period looking at descriptive mm-hmm. repre- looking at descriptive representation because there just wasn't as much of it over that over that time period. That's a difficulty in studying representation, especially the representation of underrepresented groups. Like there just aren't, in some cases, going back in time, especially like enough of them in, in the legislature to sort of like um, figure out in a systematic way like how, how a lot of that works. Yeah, I hadn't considered that, but that's so true. There's like yeah. not a data set. Well, speaking of, I guess not speaking of, just moving on to communication. <laughs> You spend a week in your class discussing constituent communication and how opinions are getting translated up to representatives. So why is constituent communication important when talking about representation and how has it changed with the implications of like social media and Twitter and such? 
So I think one of the most profound changes in constituent legislator communication that has occurred over the last um, probably 20 or 30 years, honestly, going back like the whole way to the advent of email, is the increase in the volume of constituent communications that legislators receive. It's just so much easier now for constituents to send emails to their legislators, either individually or as part of an interest group in ways that really increase the volume of communications that legislators are getting. Now in, terms of represent, now, in terms of representation, this increase in volume has put more demands on legislative offices. They've had to figure out like how to deal with this increase in constituent communications. And the interesting thing about that is that legislative offices have a lot of discretion in how they handle constituent communications and how they use them to inform their decisions. Um, there's some great research from Claire Abernathy that looks at how different these practices are across offices. But that reality does make constituent legislator communication and especially its effect on representation sort of difficult to study systematically. Most of the research on constituent legislative communication is from legislators' perspectives and looks at how legislators communicate information about their work to their constituents. Again, despite the importance of like constituent to legislator communication for accountability and, as we were talking about earlier, um, just how important that is for legislators to figure out like what their constituents want. And from you know, the legislative side as well, the legislator side, going back to that, legislators have a lot of discretion in how they present themselves to their constituents. There's research from Annalise Russell showing that you know, social media has made it both easier um, on one hand for, constitu for constituents to know what's going on with their legislators and easier for legislators to share not just information, but also an image with their constituents. And that, of course, is something that legislators have sort of done for decades as part of representation, as we know from Richard Fenno's work on how legislators present themselves to their constituencies while in the district, but now legislators can do that digitally as well. So do you think that social media and online communication is as effective as more old school traditional face-to-face -face engagement with constituents? Like what are the pros and cons? Well, I think the two questions I would have in terms of how we should think about this would be effective for whom and effective how. Because I think on one hand, social media has been a really great tool for legislators to communicate with their constituents, often in a way that's you know, more intimate and more interactive than just, for example, sharing statements that legislators might also share in their press releases, just sort of reproducing those across their social media accounts. Um, AOC, I think, is a really great example of someone who has done a lot more of this more interactive form of communication. She would do, I think it was like Instagram live streams where she would talk through policy with her followers and answer their questions. Um, sometimes I think she'd do that like while she was cooking, which again is like a really humanizing thing to do. People seemed really receptive to that. So in that way, I think it can be a great tool for legislators to get people, and especially younger people who spend more time on social media, uh, to get people interested and engaged in politics. But that doesn't really address questions of representation because on the other hand, it's you know, social media is not necessarily an effective way for constituents to communicate their concerns to their legislators. Because when legislators see you know, tweets or Facebook or Instagram comments from people, they have no way of knowing which of those communications are actually from their constituents, actually from people in their district. And because legislators have that electoral connection to constituents in their districts, they want to focus on representing them. So I think it's difficult for legislators to reply to those communications and to take them seriously. They're still mostly relying on things like phone calls and emails and letters that their offices get when it comes to hearing their constituents' opinions. Most of the research on Congress and social media looks at how legislators use social media, so we just know a lot less at this point about how constituents think about it as part of representation. And I think in terms of comparing it to traditional face-to-face -face engagement with constituents, there is a lot that doesn't necessarily come through or get communicated when you're just engaging in digital communication, especially like written digital communication as opposed to some kind of um, video communication with a legislator. 
me, I'm just kind of like showing my, my age here a little bit and the fact that I didn't really grow up with social media so much, but I just think it's kind of hard to have a sincere, in-depth, like true discussion about policy with someone over social media, about policy or anything like sort of you know really complex, because the incentives on social media are not necessarily to be calm and thoughtful about things. It's kind of just to get attention by often doing the opposite of being calm and thoughtful. I know that people can be, you know, not calm and not thoughtful in person too, but I don't think at this point that social media can necessarily be, you know, a pure substitute for face-to-face engagement. Do you think the volume makes it harder for representatives to really be incentivized to like pay attention to details of their constituents' requests? Like I think, at least in my experience working in an office and being the one to take calls and read emails and whatever, you know, it gets reduced, unfortunately, to like a spreadsheet of like, what is this about? And then like a basket of, you know, general requests about like environmental protection or about tax reform or about whatever. And if you're a representative that's like busy and on a lot of committees and needing to do a lot of things, like you get to hear about the issue areas that your constituents care about, but the reality is that like you're never really going to know the details of their specific case unless you like go in and ask them or if you're talking to them in person. Like, Do you think that has had any impact on the type of decisions representatives are making? Well, one of the really interesting things that I actually found in my research that was really surprising to me was that I discovered, just like looking through the congressional record, and I found that legislators were often sharing correspondence from their constituents where their constituents talked very specifically about a personal situation that they were experiencing. I found a lot of these related to the government shutdown that happened in early 2019, where a lot of federal workers were were writing in and saying like, you know, because we're not getting a paycheck, we had to like return the Christmas presents that we bought for our five-year-old and two-year-old. And like, we are, you know, trying to figure out how to pay for, you know, either our groceries or our heat or something like that. And these really, really specific experiences that they had. And legislators in some cases would read those letters, that correspondence, like word for word on the House floor to sort of illustrate. In that case, it was the specific effect that the shutdown was having on their constituents. So some of that at least still is getting through that incredible volume of correspondence that legislators are getting from constituents. What we don't know is exactly how that that gets there. That's something I'd like to look at in in future research. Um, Right now, I... In my dissertation, I have one chapter where I look at like archived um, collections of constituent correspondence from like the 70s or the 90s, where constituents are doing a lot of that, like sharing their personal experiences with their legislators. And then I just kind of jump right to like in a couple of recent Congresses, legislators sharing that type of um, correspondence in their speeches on the House floor. And I at some point need to look at the in-between or everything that, that happens in between those, because um, I think that's a really great point that like we don't know in the context of that incredible volume of communication, how legislators sort of still end up hearing from their constituents in that really personal way that is really um, meaningful both to constituents and just for representation more broadly, having those experiences represented in that in that very public way. Yeah. Well, that makes me feel a little bit better, at least. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Somehow it's happening. Yeah. How does the role of big money and organized interest play into contemporary um, political processes when it comes to who gets represented and who is not? A lot of the role of money and organized interest in representation, at least the way that I tend to think about it, comes down to how money affects who gets access to legislators in different ways. 
And this is a very different way of thinking about money's impact on representation than the sort of traditional like money for votes popular understanding of this, which really doesn't happen in that way as much as we tend to think it does. One way in which research has found that money influences representation is through this idea of mental access, which comes from research by Christina Myler, and she finds that when legislative staff are asked to think about constituencies in their district to whom an issue is important, they're more likely to recall groups who donated more money to the legislator and who contact the legislator's office more often. And that then affects whom legislators represent, because legislators represent the constituencies and groups whom they see in that way more often, and then they end up doing more to represent groups um, with more resources, because that's who they're seeing in that way. And we see sort of similar things happening with groups seeking access to legislators because of their committee positions. The industries um, give money to legislators who are on committees that oversee them because they want that sort of short-term access that will be relevant for their interests. And organized interests that are affiliated with political action committees have more success in contacting committee members. But that's actually in large part because they have a wide base of support in congressional districts around the country rather than because of their contributions. So the access there isn't about the money per se. So overall, there's not necessarily like one specific way that the influence of money makes itself felt in politics, but that almost makes it a more difficult issue to address if you want to do more to make sure the less resourced constituents are also being represented. One point um, that Christina Myler makes in the, um, we read the article from her about this, she also has a whole book, a whole book that looks at, at the topic um, in more depth, was that that kind of like mental access inequity there is just, it's something that's really difficult to track, like exactly, you know, who legislative staff and legislators by extension are sort of thinking about when they're they're representing the interests of their district. Have you come across any any potential solutions to those issues since it is so hard to track and then they're the results are kind of varied? Like how do you go about solving that issue to make sure that everybody gets an equal say, regardless of money? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. I need to go back, I think, and reread all of uh, Christina Myler's <laughs> whole, whole book about this and, she, and see if she discusses that um, in there at all. The one thing she does mention in the article is that, that contacting a legislator does make it more likely that their staff will sort of remember and think about that constituency when they're representing them. So contact is something that can be equalized a lot more than you know financial contributions. So that's like sort of the bright spot in there, I think, that if we encouraged more people to contact our legislators about things that could potentially do something to address those inequities in whom legislators legislative offices are are seeing in that way. But that sort of goes back to the thing we were just talking about with the incredible volume of communication. Yeah. Like what happens if we then increase that even even more? Um, so yeah, it's it's a tricky solution, I I think, in, in terms of thinking about that. Yeah. yeah, it's kind of an interesting trade-off and then kind of a spiral of, okay, well, you're just going to have endless amounts of communication to sift through. Yeah. <laughs> Do you talk about lobbyists in the course at all and how that plays into representation? I think there are, yeah, I have a couple of readings on the, the week on money and organized interest, like extra readings. Looking back at the syllabus, like after I had sort of finalized it, I did sort of if there had been like one more week in the semester, I would have done like two weeks on, on money and, and organized interest in politics and adding a little bit more about like lobbyists specifically in there too. I kind of define the like role of money in politics really broadly in that week. Like we'll also be reading a short um, article about, I think it was Congresswoman Melanie Stansbury from New Mexico, who after like years and years of fighting for this was finally able to, in the last omnibus bill that was passed in December, get funding for a tribal school in her district that had been really underfunded. I think it would like flood all the time or something like that. It was really, really in clear need of, of money to sort of like keep going and to give the students the education that they deserve. So she was finally able to get that money um, for them. So sort of thinking about like another way that money in that sense sort of goes back to 
districts. People also like don't like that's that was an, an earmark basically that that sort of of mm-hmm. um, money. People typically think about those things as like not being good, but in that case, it was something that like was clearly addressing a need. It was doing something to help you know an underserved and underrepresented community in a way that again the Stansbury had been fighting for 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 a very long time. So how do you conceptualize accountability in the course, especially in our current climate? What has accountability come to mean? Accountability in its most fundamental form, I think, refers to the fact that legislators are elected by constituents in their districts, and therefore their constituents have the power to vote them out of office if they feel that they aren't being represented. So the electoral link between legislators and their constituents is what keeps legislators responsive. This is something that we'll think about in the course throughout the semester as we talk about how constituents are represented. So how much do legislators seem concerned about their constituents holding them accountable? How do legislators' electoral concerns matter for their behavior more generally? And in the week on accountability, specifically the second to last week of the semester, we'll talk about a few articles that look at whether legislators are more responsive to constituents who are voters and how that works. So at the individual level, constituents who have sort of you know more voting power or those who are members of groups with more voting power, basically those who are more likely to vote, are better represented in terms of policy. And also at the district level, entire districts with higher voter turnout receive better policy representation from their legislators. So clearly legislators are responsive to the voices that are potentially the loudest through voting as well, again, as we might expect them to be if they want to get reelected. And the other tricky thing about accountability is that you also have to consider the burdens that it places on constituents and just how realistic it is to expect constituents to know enough about their legislators to truly be able to hold them accountable for their behavior. There's so much research in the subfield of political be- um, in the subfield of political behavior showing that people just don't know much about politics generally and aren't that engaged with it um, in a way that often makes sense, right? Because it's just not feasible always to gather every possible piece of information about what your legislator is up to. So figuring out this accountability and a this accountability equation in a way that ensures legislators are being responsive without placing an undue burden on constituents is also really difficult. And where I think partisanship comes into this is in making it slightly or even more difficult in districts that are much more lopsided by partisanship for this accountability to happen. So legislators who are winning with, you know, say, 70% of the vote in districts that overwhelmingly favor their party might not be as concerned about getting voted out by their constituents and could potentially get away with being less attentive to their constituents. But accountability in that situation certainly isn't impossible. We saw this happen um, with House Majority Leader Eric Cantor's primary defeat in 2014 when his constituents felt that he wasn't paying attention to them. We also saw this, I think, with AOC's defeat of Joe Crowley in 2018, a similar situation. She ran in that primary on a platform of really knowing the district and its people and their needs very well in a way she argued that Crowley didn't because he had sort of let his attention to the district slip. So that kind of accountability is certainly still possible, I think, even in a polarized context where there are fewer and fewer competitive seats in Congress. But I also think we need to consider the normative implications of that accountability potentially being exercised more and more by the primary electorate rather than the general electorate. I'm going to ask a really big kind of broad overview question to wrap up this section of what we're talking about. But how would you assess the state of representation in American democracy today? Has the system been better representative of different races and classes and genders in the recent past versus like 50 or 100 years ago? Do you know if we're headed in a positive or negative direction at least? Like, how would you wrap this up? I think in a purely descriptive sense, it's clear that, yes, the system is more representative, especially in terms of race and gender today than at any previous point. The numbers of women and people of color in Congress are at an all-time high now in 2023, as they have been over the last several Congresses as well. 
it is really striking, I think, that we are still hitting so many firsts on so many of these counts. Um, for instance, Vermont just elected its first woman um, and first openly gay woman, it's the same person, uh, to Congress in 2022. Until that point, Vermont had been the only state that hadn't yet elected a woman to Congress. Um, Illinois and Colorado are two states that recently elected their first Latina legislators. Pennsylvania, for the first time, elected a black woman to Congress, uh, to the House specifically. We also had for the last few months of the 117th Congress, so at the end of last year, Native American, Native Alaskan, and Native Hawaiian representation in Congress for the first time ever simultaneously. So these firsts are both really exciting because they are being attained. And I also think, again, like it's a little depressing that they took so long to get to in most cases, but they are also a good indicator that at least descriptively representation is moving in the right direction as Congress just looks a lot more like the country on those demographic counts. Class and economic background, I think, is one that raises a really interesting set of questions and issues, and one that I think is difficult to address in terms of representation. Overall, there is just not much substantive representation of poor constituents in Congress, but there is um, other research from Christina Myler, a different book uh, that she wrote, showing that the few legislators who do pay attention to the concerns of poor constituents are mostly women, and especially women of color. And they do this even if they don't have a lot of poor constituents in their districts themselves. So in that way, the gains in representation by gender and race could also bode well for representation by class if those trends continue. At the same time, working class people themselves are much less likely to run for Congress and therefore also to be in Congress, in large part, um, as research from Nicholas Carnes shows, because they're just less likely to be recruited by parties and interest groups to run for office. So it's structural factors rather than something like the quality of the candidates or money in politics more generally that's putting those barriers there. And then there are issues that newly or, or you know, recently elected legislators like AOC and Maxwell Frost, who's the first Gen Z member of Congress who was just elected in 2022, issues that these legislators have brought up with respect to the difficulty of getting settled in office if you're not coming into the position with a lot of wealth, like the fact that legislators have to find a residence in D.C. and they have to go without a salary for several months between being elected and being sworn in. And that's really difficult to do if you don't at least have savings or something that can help cover that time period. But my hope is that legislators speaking out about those difficulties will lead to changes within the institution that will make this easier for similar legislators down the line to get elected and to be in office in ways that would ultimately help you know, with working class representation. The one thing that I'm slightly less optimistic about, and I hate to sort of end like on a, on a bummer here, um, <laughs> is the role of partisanship and representation and its potential to override other factors that are also important for representation. There is great recent research um, from Jacqueline Kaslowski that shows that visits to the district by senators, like where senators will go around their state, visit with groups in their constituency. It's a really important thing that they do during congressional recesses to get to know their constituents. Those district visits actually have a negative effect on senators' approval among constituents who don't share their ideology. So not only are cross-party constituents like just not giving their senators credit for being engaged in the constituency, there's actually like sort of a backlash from constituents who don't agree with them. Like they don't even want to see them in the district, in the in the state at all. Um, that's one example, but I think it's part of a larger trend suggesting the partisanship and the emphasis that constituents, and especially those who are really engaged in politics, place on it. Um, it can have the potential to, at worst, I think, disincentivize incentivize legislators from doing the kinds of traditional representational activities that are important for building connections with constituents. Well, let's move into talking just briefly about your dissertation research. Can you give us an overview of what that's going to be? Yeah, my dissertation looks at how constituent service functions as a part of representation in Congress, especially in our current polarized context. So constituent service, which broadly is the process in which legislators help their constituents navigate issues that they're having with the federal bureaucracy, 
has traditionally been thought to be this nonpartisan activity that doesn't have any policy content, and legislators can do this to help them get reelected in a way that doesn't depend on policy congruence between the legislator and the constituent. So constituent service has mostly been conceptualized as a key part of the electoral link specifically between constituents and legislators, rather than as a part of sort of the broader representational link. And partly because of that, it's mostly been studied just from legislators' perspectives. We don't know how we don't know much about how constituents actually experience constituent service, and especially how it might work now in such a polarized context when partisanship and policy representation are so important to constituents. So that's mostly what my dissertation looks at. I use a survey experiment to show that constituents prefer to ask for help with bureaucratic issues from legislators who share their partisanship. I analyze archived constituent letters to show that constituents emphasize their identities and their experiences and their correspondence with legislators, often to make the case that they deserve representation. And then I analyze floor speeches in which members of the House share that kind of constituent correspondence, sometimes by reading the correspondence word for word as part of their speeches to show that legislators are more likely to give this kind of responsiveness to members of groups that have that have historically been constructed as being deserving, groups like seniors and veterans and employed constituents. But this symbolic responsiveness, I find, doesn't translate into substantive policy representation that benefits these groups. And instead, legislators seem to mostly be using this correspondence just to make partisan points in their speeches. So constituents' orientations toward constituent service matter both for their own representation and for collective constructing for collective constructions of who deserves representation and why. And then contrary to our assumptions, partisanship is also part of the entire process from constituents' decisions about whom to ask for help to legislators' public responsiveness to constituents' concerns in ways that have the potential, I think, to mute sort of both the electoral and representational effects of constituent service. Since we're kind of starting to run low on time here, I think we're going to hop over to our last questions. But your, oh my gosh, your dissertation research sounds super fascinating. It really does. Thanks. <laughs> yeah, so before we really wrap up here, is there anything that we haven't talked about that you feel like we should bring up? I mean, there's one other like sort of interesting thing that I think sort of goes back to um, the question about the role of uh, race and ethnicity and gender in politics. There's a week where we'll look at research on um, what I'm calling in the syllabus responsiveness, there are many different types of responsiveness, like as I talked about earlier, but this is specifically like legislators' responsiveness to constituents' communications and often their requests for help and the ways in which legislators, um, in a lot of cases, like racially discriminate against constituents in their responsiveness um, there. There's research showing that they do that um, by race, that they're less responsive to black constituents, that they're also less responsive to um, Muslim American constituents, to immigrant constituents in in several ways as well, often in ways that that are tied to race. Um, So that's another sort of side of the sort of underrepresentation and sort of lack of of inclusion of those historically marginalized groups um, that even, you know, comes through in in that um, form of, of responsiveness there, I guess. Mm, yeah. yeah. Of course it is. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 Depressing, but yeah. Yeah. Fair. Yeah. Okay. Well, I want to end on a little bit of a more fun, light note. So we'd love to hear, since you've been in Madison for a while, as you were saying, <laughs> this is your seventh year. Yeah. What has been your favorite place around the city or around campus to kind of do all of your prep that you need to do or do your dissertation writing? Uh, okay, I'm going to give one sort of like basic answer, another like hopefully less less basic answer. Um, I have to say the terrace, of course, and specifically like there's that upper level part, like sort of near the theater, I think, in Memorial Union that's like not quite as crowded as the main part. It's usually in the shade in the afternoons in the summer, which is really nice. Mm-hmm. Um, I do not love crowds, but I love the atmosphere of the terrace, like in, in small doses like that. So that's a really nice place to get work done over the summer or in the spring and the fall when the weather's nice. And the other place on campus that I really love, especially for the winter, is, um, I don't know the name of it, I, I think it has a name 
name. It's a big room on the second floor, I think, of Memorial Union with the fireplaces and the piano. That's a, uh, yeah. 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 It's a really gorgeous room with really great atmosphere. It's very cozy um, in the winter when the fireplaces are going. And I haven't been there to work, like, in ages, actually, so this is a great reminder that I, that I need to go do that more. Um, but when I would work there, like, all the time years ago, I realized that I think, like, after 5 p.m., the piano in there was open for anyone to play, and there was a person who would come in. I don't know if they were a student affiliated with the university in some other way or if they were a community member, but they would come in and they'd play the piano, and they were really, really good, and it was just such a pleasure to listen to them play while I worked there in the evenings. All right. Well, thank you so, so, so much for coming on the podcast and talking to us about all of these really interesting topics. I feel like we could keep going, but we're going to respect your time. (laughs) So thank you so much for joining us. This has been great. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. This was, yeah, this was really, really great. Thank you. For more information on 1050 Bascom, visit polysci.wisc.edu and search for 1050 Bascom. The podcast is edited by Claire Salmi, Fiona Hatch, and Cole Wozniak, and is produced by Amy Gangle. Thanks for listening.